Food Talk with Mike Kalameko is brought to you by Cento at CentoFineFoods.com, King Arthur Flower at KingArthurFlower.com, and Colavita at Colavita.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Hey folks, welcome to, what is this, the third or the fourth? I think this is the third one. Uh, Michael Mecco's Food Talk here on Heritage Radio Network. Nice to be back on the microphone again. Nice to be talking about food. And nice to be talking to an audience that's out there on the internet. Just had a big discussion today with another mate of mine that does this sort of thing. And we're talking about how the whole world has moved to mobile devices. This old generation of kids out there that don't have TV sets, don't own radios, don't buy newspapers. Everything comes off the handheld. So fine, I am I'm on your handheld. Uh, you can listen to us live as you are now on heritageradionetwork.org, or you can listen to us on the podcasts, on iTunes, or on Stitcher. So we're all over the place. What's the show about? Well, Kalamako's Food Talk. I'm picking up where I left off at my old gig at WOR, which is that. This is a one-hour rambling, free-for-all, anything-goes discussion of food, wine, cocktails, you name it, in the world of food and restaurants. We will cover it. Um, today's show, I'll give you a little hint if you're into wine, stay tuned. If you're not into wine, forget about it, because we have wine guests stacked back-to-back. And some big names, my first guest, and I'll bring her on in just a minute, is Alice Firing, um, whose name I mispronounce all the time. I call her Fearing from time to time. It's Firing, <laughs> F-I-R, like Firing Range, you idiot. Uh, she's great. I've had her on uh, my old show, and I'll, she'll be a regular stop here as well. She's great. She's got a great point of view, has a great voice. She has a newsletter that she puts out, which we're going to let her shill for shamelessly because it's well worth it. After Alice, we'll have Anthony Giglio, who's a name that you may or may not know. Anthony is a really a wine writer that's written for everybody, Food and Wine, Food and Wine's annual wine guide. He's an educator. He's a great speaker. We're going to talk about wine for most of the hour, but I'll start it by telling you about a great dinner I went to last week. Thank you for the friends, um, my friends at Italy Cafe. Uh, the gentleman that owns Italy Cafe was in town and hosted a Brunello dinner at Tony May's uh, restaurant that he's really kind of opened up, I think, for his daughter eventually to take over. Marissa, SD26, down on 26th Street, right above Madison's, Madison Park, Madison Square Park, whatever they call that big thing there where 11 Madison is, and the Italy's across the street. Great meal, great food, Brunello, whew, what can I tell you? I lost track of how many vintages we had. Also had a great dinner last week um, with Joe Dobias and his lovely wife, Jill, Mr. and Mrs. Joe Doe, it's called, that's on 1st Street, opposite Prune. They sort of revamped that restaurant, going a little more casual. They've got a great sandwich shop nearby. Food solid, man. Tiny kitchen. Joe puts it out. He's in the kitchen. Jill works the floor. I guess it's like every couple's dream slash nightmare is to open up a restaurant and then figure out, what the heck did I sign up for? It's seven days a week. I'm on my feet. Yikes. But they're cool. They're stoked. They're young. They just got married. They're in love. And the food's really good. And it's funny. Every time I walk down First Street, you know, <clears throat> one of the nice things about being older is you have this great memories of New York neighborhoods. And I remember back in the early 90s, a friend of mine lived on Avenue B opposite Tompkins Square Park, right next to Charlie Parker's old house. And we used to go for dinner in the neighborhood, and there wasn't a lot of choices. And it was a little restaurant where Prune is now, but its original name 
in the original location, at that location, was called Kazanis. Turns out the girl that ran it went to high school with me, which is like small world stuff because that would be suburban Philadelphia. Um, and I, I remember just going to Kazanis because it was decent and it was down there and I knew them. And you, First Street <laughs> ends on, I guess, the Bowery. It's, it's, it's a three-block little catty corner thing that runs off a of house for just a few blocks. And it used to be Drug Row. I don't know if you remember that, but it was the Mars Bar on the next corner. You just watch guys with Jersey license plates and cars from Westchester and <laughs> Long Island nodding out in the front seats and junkies. It was, it was a scene. Well, now it's all cleaned up like so much of New York. Um, Anyway, um, go, I'm kind of excited tomorrow night. By the way, a shout out to my old friend Christian Delouvrier. He was one of my chef mentors back in the 80s. He was the second restaurant I ever worked at. In fact, for, for about six months, I worked lunch service at the Four Seasons. They let me come in early, and then they let me leave a little early. And I would run upstairs, change, and then run to the Maurice and do dinner service. I don't know how I did that. For six months, I worked two jobs on the line. But eventually, Christian promoted me to sous chef. And I was able to make enough money to leave the Four Seasons, which I wasn't happy about. But you can't work two jobs for long. It'll kill you. In fact, I don't think I could do that for one day now. Um, I was with Christian for two and a half years. Great experience. He was one of my mentors. And tomorrow, he's going to get the National Order of Merit from the Consulate General of France, which is a big deal. So I'll be there on Fifth Avenue um, wearing a jacket and a tie, I suppose. Anyway, let me introduce my guest and bring her on microphone, Alice Firing. Alice, thanks for coming on. Always a pleasure to be with you. No, it's great. Great to have you, and we're going to talk about what we want to talk about. Um, when, I'm just, I don't know if I ever asked you this, but I know on the West Coast I began to see women as psalms maybe 15 years ago, because they're always ahead of us with everything. Mm-hmm. And then I saw it, like, it just sort of, that New York broke the barrier. When I first started, I mean, if you go back even 15, 18 years there were only four or five restaurants that even had Psalms in New York City. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, it was remarkable. It was just, you go to these great restaurants and the waiters direct you around wine. And now, any restaurant worth its salt probably has someone on the floor of that title. And it's just been phenomenal for women. I mean, there's, uh, is it almost 50-50? What's your sense? Oh, I think it probably is more than 50-50 That's what I now. think. Yeah, I agree. Well, was, and, what uh, drew, and what drew you to wine is my question. That what was drew a, me to wine? Yeah, yeah, yeah. On yeah. my nose. <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> I was and your palate. Sniff- I was sniffing everything that before I ate it or drank it from the time I was an infant. So that's probably what it was. And I came to wine through, I guess, the breaking point. I moved to Boston to go to graduate school. I had a roommate who had a wine collection. We had tastings at my house twice a week. Ten years later, I knew something. I kept it going. I moved back, back to New York to be a writer. I knew something about wine. But it was when I discovered natural wine and started really championing that. That's when I without a doubt, became a wine writer. And when was what? When was that? Early? That was 2000. I had already okay. been writing about okay. wine pretty much like three quarters of time since 1990. Uh, but 2000 was a real turn. I sort of got, I got more politically involved in wine and started spending a lot of time in vineyards, and that just catapulted me. Well, if you were discovering this in 2000, you were way ahead of me because it, was, it, it started out... It, it, I mean, these days... You and I talked about this off microphone yeah. a minute right. ago. These days... You walk into any decent store that's got a reasonably large selection, retail wine store, and they'll have their own area of just bio and organic wines mm-hmm. that they have segregated. Mm-hmm. Uh, it used to be you, they were intermingled, and you had to sort of read the back of the labels to figure out who was doing what. Some people didn't even bother with the labeling. But it's a relatively new thing. When, when where, we know why. But no. tell, tell me a bit about the evolution, because it's remarkable. Well, the evolution, uh, I, 
Well, the evolution, let's say about 15 years ago when there was organic wine on the shelves, a lot of the corks kept on popping, poor storage, the the wine shops were kind of fed up with them because they never knew exactly what was going to be in the bottle. It's still, it's, still, it's still kind of true sometimes. Yeah, it is. <laughs> you still don't know, but yeah. you don't know whether you're going to get what a lot of people call bad natural wines, bacterial swamps in that bottle. <laughs> <laughs> Thank yeah. you. So that's uh, uh, what happened uh, probably since 2008. Oh, I'd like to think that I had something to do with it when my, the Battle for Wine and Love came out. Hmm. And or how I saved the world from parkerization, and it was it was the first book that really celebrated this change of people going away from the parkerized taste to more natural, less manipulated, less let's try to pronounce that correctly, less manipulated wines. Hold hold that thought because I just want to bore down because for those of you again you're listening to Michael McCoe's Food Talk on Heritage Radio Network. My guest is Alice Byring. Parkerization. So Robert Parker is this yes. omnipresent figure in the wine world. Yes. Works. Uh, you know, built this institution right. in that suburban Maryland, yeah. becoming probably uh, him and Jancis. It's hard to say who is or was more important, but Parker, Parker the guy carries a huge cudgel mm. to the point where his wine reviews would change the way, in a way, sold bottles. Sold bottles would change the way Bordeaux would make wine. Exactly. I mean, if you get the Bordelais to move, that's impressive. Well, that was quick, they, they dropped like flies. They got those concentrators in, they got those powdered tannins, they got those yeast. They really, they started emulating California and anything that was big is better. And often what's big and better, you have to make with additives. So I started writing about that. I think a very it happened really, really on a very small level that a lot of winemakers when making wine, they didn't like to drink themselves. <laughs> they realized there was a market. There was, maybe there was a market because there was all this natural wine coming out of France that people in the United States was clamoring for. <clears throat> Japan was nuts over, Scandinavia. And some people in the United States started going, hmm, maybe I don't have to make the other kind of wine. So it started slowly around then. And then I think after palate fatigue of all these huge wines, just finding something that made you smile and laugh and like, whoa, what the hell is that? Really caught people's attention. They're lively for better, for worse. You Sometimes you do get a crappy bottle, but that's the same with every wine on the shelf. But the, um, the chance for surprise and delight is greater, and that is why they caught on. It's funny. You, I just wrote down... Um, what did you? Palate fatigue. So it's oh, funny. You just exactly. I'm, no. It's my. And I, I was just thinking maybe because I've always you know tried to speculate why Parker liked what he did, and having gone to some wine tastings, having gone to the Bordeaux Premier a couple of times. Um, if you're in this biz, if you're in his business, you're literally waking up at seven in the morning and possibly tasting seventy five right. to one hundred wines or more, or more two hundred before lunch, and palate fatigue. Mm-hmm. So what would stand out? suddenly becomes the big, exactly. the bold, the over-the-top, the jammy, exactly. the fruity, the larger-than-life, the wines that just grab you by the throat, mm-hmm. and su- suddenly he's lost. Yeah. You know, at first, when those those really came on, they were different, and they were surprising, and I think that a lot of us went, oh, well, that's really interesting. But when that style really wiped out a region's authenticity, that's when it became dangerous for me, and that's when I found, I guess, my soapbox to try to, like, stop it from happening. How much is it growing in the States? Um, I, I worked for a while with 
the people at Languedoc Roussillon, now it's Build Sud de France, double, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. sort of for marketing terms, mm -hmm. huge wine producing region, for years was relegated to being a bulk wine. The grapes were planted in the wrong place. It was all about getting yield. Once France lost Algeria, with their appetite for wine, they needed some place to make great vin de table, and mm -hmm. Languedoc Roussillon became that. But then at some point in the 80s and 90s, real estate became so expensive elsewhere that you had this migration of young winemakers. Right. Where can I plant? Where, where, where exactly. can I go that's cheap? Coming down to discover these great old vineyards and a climate that is spectacular. Mm -hmm. So Languedoc Roussillon now is, if I'm not mistaken, not only the largest producer in region in France producing organic wines, but probably the world. You don't have to. I, I don't know. No, it, I, I believe they bill yeah, themselves. Yeah, probably as that. they they bill it. But you know, that's a, that's you know, Bordeaux may make a claim like that too. It's th people manipulate the how manipulate the figures, and I don't know exactly how they manipulate the figures in the Languedoc. Okay, but w one of the things that impressed me having traveled, I traveled that area a lot. So in, in doing this work, I was probably probably a half dozen time in the last three or four years in vineyards and during the summer or at the crush and it's just i think part of the reason you it, it, it lend, that area lends itself to organic bio should you choose is the weather is just spectacular spectacular it, uh, it, it rains just enough in mm -hmm. the spring you get the fruit set you get the, the flowers the budding everything works the summer it dries off you have that wonderful wind coming i was up just going to say that wonderful wind try and be a vigneron and try to deal with that wind that is fierce that yeah. is battling the wind but it keeps the vines healthy yeah it keeps the vines healthy yeah. um so what are the challenges in the states for this? Because that's um, that's what I was trying to get at. Oh, California is fine. I mean, most places in California, there's no reason there shouldn't be way more acreage. It's difficult on Long Island because yeah. it's wet and you really have to be dedicated. But it really is all about commitment. There's one woman that I know of, um, Deidre Heaken, up in uh, where she's not far from Woodstock, I think Barnard. Uh, Vermont, and she is the only organic and natural winemaker in the state of Vermont. Well, you would think Vermont would have plenty of people. It's Vermont, for God's <laughs> sakes. Yeah, right. But she is committed. It is right. important to her, and so she does it. The other people, well, let's use some chemicals. In fact, this year she had a lot of people. It was a dreadful year. It was wet and like awful, and, and a lot of people were just telling her, you know, it's irresponsible to be organic, and she's like, to hell with them. You have to have a commitment to do it. Yeah, gotcha. What's she growing? What varietals up that Oh, north? Marquette. <laughs> Stuff I've never heard of. Louise, uh, is it Louise Swenson? I, yeah, Louise Swenson. Are they all white? Grape. Yeah, they're all white. No, Marquette is, is, red. is red, and I did it blind. I served a bunch of vigneron in my house last February, a bottle that had been open for a week blind, and they all thought it was uh, Nebbiolo. It was gorgeous. Wow. She does amazing method champenoise. Really nice stuff. Couple of, well, maybe it was six months to a year ago, because it must have been the old food talk. We were emailing each other back and forth on topics, and I wanted you to come on the show, and you said, oh, I can't come that day. I'll be in Georgia. And I just sort of read the email and said, oh, good, have fun. And, and I'm afterwards thinking to myself, so I, I know there's wine all over America. You know, there's wine, <laughs> there's wine in Texas. There's wine in Virginia. They grow wine in Jersey. But Georgia, I mean, with peach wine. And when you got back, you're like, dude, you're an idiot. Georgia okay. on that side of the ocean. Black Sea, Georgia. <laughs> Black Sea, Georgia, which it turns out has like a 3,000-year history or more of winemaking. Yeah, they'd like to say six to 8,000. 
So I have read. So you brought a bottle of something. We'll I get did. to it in a minute. But talk about, because I, I remember, was, was Joey Campanile, was he on that trip with you to Georgia? The very first trip that I went on. I saw him in Facebook. Cause they have a, that's how yes. I sort of stay in yes. touch with all you, right. you social media types. Which, by the way, let's give a shout out to your newsletter. Right okay, newsletter. Forgot. It's coming up to one year anniversary of The Firing Line. What I believe is the only English language newsletter dedicated to organic, biodynamic, and natural wines. Spell it. Spell it. Spell it. F e i r i n g l i n e dot com. Alice has a great voice. She has a great voice. The reason I had you on so much W O R. Loved reading your writing and your musings about wine and why you're here. And I'll ask you to come back at least a bunch of times a year is because you do have this great point of view. You're passionate about it. You believe in it, and you've got a great palate. So, um, you know, there's lots of free wine stuff out there, folks. There's a lot of bloggers that talk about wine there's like opinions and then there's informed opinions mm. and I'd say the informed opinions are worth spending a couple of dollars on. Uh, Alice isn't a shill for anybody and I can't tell you how many bloggers, I don't want to disparage bloggers, tough way to make a living. So when someone flies you somewhere and puts you in a hotel for a week and you come back raving about it, just mm, gotta have to. Mm, right. maybe there's a quid pro quo going on mm. here and it, that's kind of rife in the industry. Yeah. I was actually surprised how many people were willing to pay for it and I'm delighted. Good. You should I be. Congratulations been. on your success. So almost Thanks. a year. That's the firing line, F-E-I-R-I-N-G. There's a sample issue. If you go to my blog, if you even forget how to spell my name and do Alice Wine Red Hair, you'll come to my blog and hit <laughs> newsletter and go look at a sample. All right. Let's go back to this Georgia thing. Okay. Joey Campanile actually has a show here on Heritage Radio Network. It's about wine. He's great. I mean, he's like a young... I remember when he opened up Artuzzi, I lived on Abington Square. I was like, what is this place, man? It was so, or, or Delanima, excuse me, that was, that was, that was, that was a, when he opened up Delanima, uh, it was busy from 5.30, no one eats dinner in the village at 6 o'clock, they did there, and then I'd be coming home from, you know, a concert at 1 in the morning, and it'd be packed, and the guy does like seven turns yeah. in a restaurant the size of a shoebox, mm-hmm. and he's had nothing but success, and the first time I met him, we did a piece on him for my, my uh, PBS show, Dude, how old are you? Like, when did you got, got into wine? Like in his early twenties, while he was in college in Italy, and has hasn't stopped running. Yeah, he's still not thirty. <laughs> Kills me. Another one of those kids. Yeah. Uh, right. All right. So talk about so, Georgian wine because there is this amazing. We're literally going back six, seven thousand years right. of winemaking. And I've been there four times in two years. So I just got back last month. Uh, Georgian wine, it is the longest unbroken tradition of making wine in a very, very minimalist way, making wine in those buried amphora called quivery, which uh, come in a few sizes, either reaching and clean or jumping and clean. Once you get them into the ground, as long as there's not an earthquake, they're good for a couple of centuries. And these are... Excuse me, try and speak English, Mike. For those of you that don't know, these are these huge ceramic... How would you describe the shape of them? I mean, uh, I think they're a citron-shaped. Okay, and, and so they're made out of ceramic. They're one-off kind of custom pieces that the top part, the business end of it, will be at ground level and the rest of it subterranean. Exactly, and there's that point at the bottom and... It is, uh, many winemakers believe it really is an amazingly perfect shape to make wine naturally. And the reason that I was so intrigued by it, there were all these people who have never really messed with their wine. They were just coming out of um, being able to live their dream of making a wine after the Soviets left. And a lot of them are just bottling for the first time. And some just raw talent, like Didimi, he's 70. His first bottle was, his first wine was bottled at 71 years of age. And he's all the rage in Italy, and we're going to get his wines here next, I think in 2014, Krakuna. Who knew? 
gorgeous, delicious, clean, juicy. Just if, and there's something very healthful, lugubrious about these wines. Where can I get them in the, in, in the city? In the city. I mean, the usual choices. Aster might be one of my the better bets. Usual choices. Brooklyn is a really good bet since we're talking out of Brooklyn. Which stores in Brooklyn? Natural Wine Company in Williamsburg and a new place that is run by Fifi who started Ten Bells. Oh, which is on Broom Street behind me. Yeah, but in Brooklyn, um, Le Passage Passage de la Fleur, I think it's on Vanderbilt. Mm. And he's got a bunch of the Georgian wines and I believe the one that we have here Pheasant's Tears also 67 Wines and Spirits up to Upper, Upper West Side been there forever yeah. kind of institution neighborhood tell me about the wine we're going to pour okay tell me well about what we let's have see us. let's see I could basically have a lot of mud on my face right now what do we got I don't know I, no, glug 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 it's white uh, it's, it's got some nice color to it well I think it is yeah it's white it's actually should be a lot more orange than it should why isn't it orange <laughs> It's wow. got a little skin contact here. Wow. So this has been hugging the skins for, I think, about three months. Uh, the wines, the white wines there are usually made like red wines. So everything, everything goes into the quivery. It sits there for, you know, until fermentation is over. It gets transferred to another quivery with its skins. And a lot of people will keep it on the skins for six months. So that means, okay. You got tannin, tannin for the skins? Unbelievable. I'm sitting here looking at a wine that's really, like you said, almost an orange, way past the straw, mm-hmm. almost an orange, golden kind of color mm-hmm. with a tint of blush to it almost. Not red blush, right. but orange kind of blush. Um, the nose is tough. It's almost almost kind of oxidized. Mm-hmm. Kind of, had a kind of, it has kind of a kind of a funk in the nose, so I'm not going to Yeah, it's wax. got a bit. There is a, there is a bit of a funk. Very rarely are you going to get an immediately gorgeous smelling Actually, the 2012s are pretty fragrant, uh, but it is a, it's a wine that I believe just takes you to a different dimension, and a lot of people have gotten into bashing orange wines like lately or just have orange wine overkill. A lot of orange wines, which you get from, from places in Italy that have been most popularized, can be very dried out. And what I find the best of the Georgian wines do have this a little dried out on the outside and on the end, but inside this big juiciness. This is an uh, and live and lively wine. Right? I've so been drinking wine for the better part of forty years. Never had a, a wine like this. It's like a kind of oh, a one-off good. experience. And you're right. right. So I'm drinking a white wine, and the first hit in your mouth, you're just getting tannins on both sides of your tongue right. and your palate, just sucking dry. Like where's that coming from? Right. It's the skin's down there. The skin's. Yeah. Now the some people natural fermentation or added yeast natural fermentation. Natural fermentation. The only thing here is, um, I think in 2011 there was I forgot how much kind of low at bottling. A lot of people in Georgia still consider sulfur the devil, so they don't like to add it because you don't want to add devil to your wine, and just believe that you need to take the ego out of your winemaking and get away from it as much as possible. As a result, people from France have been doing pilgrimages to Georgia. And this year, there are 12 winemakers that got deliveries of Quivry from Georgia, including Thierry Puzla, Jean Foyard in, in Beaujolais. 2013 was a terrible vintage in France. Very, very difficult. But yeah. we're going to see some Quivry wines in very unusual places. That's hysterical. 
But if you know when when you read about the earliest wine writing, the earliest we can go back historically, wine was kind of thought to almost be well, it was not almost had kind of religious significance, like it was a gift from mm-hmm. the heavens, from God, from whatever whoever one looked up, whoever it was one looked up at. Because up until then, and to this day still, I mean, most fermentation, you're manipulating something. You're roasting barley, mm-hmm. you're adding mead, had to have something to it. Mm-hmm. Grapes turn into wine naturally, basically, you just if you don't get in the way. And that's, it's almost, and for that reason, I think people thought it was like magical. If these grapes, you pick them off the vine, if you crush them, if you put them in a compound of a vessel and you mm-hmm. wait a little while, fermentation would occur, you'd have it right. done in however many days, depending on the temperature, and then you'd have this completely unstable wine that would be, probably every day for the next right. year, it would taste different. Um, but it, it is naturally occurring, and that's, it's almost like this is stepping back. It is to way the beginning back. of time. It's very close to way they did make wine 6,000 years ago. And with the, that shape, you know, what, after fermentation, all of the, like the yeast and stuff, so it basically naturally collects in that nipple at the bottom. So it makes it very easy to make a very clean wine. And then with the skins, it gives it a lot of protection. From so you really don't need sulfur because that's natural protection from the tannins and the skin. Genius, isn't there? I know there is, and you'll tell me his name. A winemaker in northern Italy doing this now. A plenty of them, and plenty you're speaking of, of Jasko Gravner. Thank you, Gravner. That's the guy who's been yeah. getting a lot of press. Yes, he's the one that really went, was the first one to go to Georgia and go like, "Holy cow, got to get some of these." And then yeah. he started experimenting, and it was around 2002 he switched over completely to Coivry. And where is he? What region? He's in Friuli. Oh, Friuli, okay. Yeah, I've had to just in, in, in extraordinary way. So we're going to see this this basically probably the oldest style of winemaking now exactly. cross pollinating into France, into um, Italy. Now, and actually, one thing: Grovner's wines are hundred bucks. Pheasant's Tears are twenty. This is a twenty dollar bottle of wine. Yeah. No way. Yeah. You're gonna have to email me where I can get this. This yeah. wine's like an it's like an epiphany. It's like really like, a, and I, it's a su- super. I, it's really hard to talk about things on the on the radio. It's hard to do even TV about wine because you kind of want to taste it, right? It's hard. But what a food wine this is because it has wine. this remarkable. A, it has tannin, has this remarkable yeah. minerality, this acidity yeah. too, with its bracing that just polishes it off, and then it's big and fat and round it's in the big middle. Fat. This I is, know. I mean, this is this wine would crush if you're eating it with fluke or flounder or a light fish. Good it, call. Too big. Good call. Way too big. Yeah. I mean, this is like the other side of the whites. Mm-hmm. Incredible. Well, give us a shout out one more time for the website. Okay. So, The Firing Line, the only natural wine newsletter. What else shall I say about it? Um, what you get are wine recommendations. So, there are 20 wine recommendations. And I don't do reviews. These, I'm just saying these are the 20 wines right. that I found this month right. that I like. And I have icons. I don't do a numeric uh, categorization of it. There's a one technology, so you can come away with some good geek info about soil or fermentation or something like that. Uh, where to eat and where to drink, and some either really good in depth thing about a specific kind of wine or wine region and a winemaker profile. Monthly? Uh, nine times a year. Okay. Worth it. Again, if you're listening to Heritage Radio Network and you're listening to my show or any of the great shows on Heritage Radio Network, you are a foodie. You signed up for the program. If you're a foodie, you probably like wine. And if you're like me, you're probably going to have wine every chance you get. I've had wine with dinner for the last, don't get me started, maybe 40 years. I I just can't imagine dinner without it. I would just be bored to tears. Um, And there's a lot of voices out there, but I really try and 
curate the ones that, that I have on my show carefully. And actually, it's shout out to you for not reviewing. You know, I've been doing PBS for 12 years, and people want you to review. I, there's enough critics. There's enough reviewers. There's enough people out there giving 88 points, 90, mm -hmm. enough. Why go into that noise? Let's just, if I, if I have a show, if I have a restaurant on my PBS show, I like it. If there's if restaurants mm -hmm. I talk about on this show, it's because I like them. Okay. Let the haters hate somewhere else. I, I don't do that here. But so anyway, for, the, for you, you folks listening, Alice is a great, great resource. That's F I E R F E I R I N G. Uh, firing line. She's great. She's wonderful. Um, and and it'll get you stoked to sort of find out about some of these far flung varietals, producers that make them. Uh, you can Google or she'll tell you where to buy them, uh, and it'll just really help you with this journey of learning about wine. Because the only way to learn about wine, it's honestly, is to drink it drink every it. day that you can. Yeah. Have it, find out what you like. No one's going to tell you what you like. That's up to you. That's everyone's. Mm -hmm. every, it's funny when you sit at wine tasting sometimes with four or five friends, how everyone gets different things off of. I know. You know you're getting one thing. I'm going, how are you getting that? I'm not getting that at all. It's so funny. Everyone's palate's different. Everyone's nose architecture is different. Yeah. But you, to, to find out what you like, drink wine and and subscribe to Alice's uh, newsletter. She's great. We'll have you back on this show in a couple of months. Thanks, Thanks so much Mike. for coming out. Folks, you're listening to Heritage Radio Network. The name of the program is Mike Kalameko's Food Talk. Got a quick shout out to a couple of our sponsors, and then we'll be back with Anthony Giglio for the balance of the show to talk about wines. I believe we're talking about southern Italy, but Anthony will remind me. Stay tuned for that. You are listening to Black Hand by Peels here on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. folks, Mike Colomaco here. When I'm at home and I want to make a great tomato sauce, well, it starts with shopping, and I always go for Cento brand San Marzano tomatoes. It comes from a region just outside of Naples in the foothills of Mount Vesuvius, where there's this amazing volcanic soil, a super clean high water table that the Greeks were raving about eons ago. It's a special place with a special microclimate, and it's really a unique tomato. It's kind of long and banana-shaped with a real thin skin, heavy, thick flesh wall, and not many seeds, it's the perfect canning tomato. So come mid-August, when the season's perfect, that's when they slow down the production, slow down the farming, and can the Cento San Marzano tomatoes. It's harvested with complete sustainability, and it's the best tomatoes, everybody agrees, for tomato sauce. All of Cento's San Marzano tomatoes, from the seeds to the fields to the farms to the production facility, are certified by an independent agency which guarantees the traceability. It's what I use when I want to make great tomato sauce at home. Cento San Marzano tomatoes. King Arthur Flour, established in 1790, is America's oldest flour company. They're an employee-owned company whose passion is sharing the joy of baking and inspiring bakers worldwide. When King Arthur was founded in 1790, George Washington was the newly elected president of the United States. The company was sold by the Sands family to King Arthur Flower employees in 1996. 
They are now an ESOP company, 100% employee-owned, with a 100% commitment to quality. Visit them at kingarthurflower.com. Hey folks, welcome back to Mike Kalameko's Food Talk here on the Heritage Radio Network. Pleasure to be here. I want to give a shout out to a brand new sponsor, people that have been with me forever on my uh, PBS show, talking about Cola Vita olive oil. Um, when I first started doing the TV show, I went after people that, um, for underwriters of products that I actually used in my pantry. Um, Cola Vita's always been a staple. It's a great olive oil. What I learned afterwards was, as I looked around the olive oil shells, there's a bunch of brands that begin with bees that build themselves with Italian olive oil, and it's just not true. They import a lot of olive oil. Italy exports about 10 times more olive oil than it actually produces, so Colavita is the only one for years in that extra virgin category that has actually been Italian olive oil in the bottle from Italy, making it to America. Uh, it's a great family, great story. It's a great olive oil. It's what I've used for cooking for years. Uh, Use it on salads, use it to finish fish, use it for everything. So if you're looking for olive oil in that category, Colavita Extra Virgin, and the whole Colavita line is great. Glad to have them on board for this show. Thanks, guys. And we're going to come back in just a second. We have Anthony Giglio in studio. We're going to get him on microphone in a minute. Um, in, the, in the meantime, I don't know what he brought, but I think we're going to talk about Anthony, tell us what we're talking about. Campania. He's, he's getting ready. He's... He's taking his scarf off. The studio's hot. If you didn't know, hey, let me tell you something. This is funny. I, I, you know, I used to do radio, radio for a long time. WOR, that food talk show, iconic, started by Brooklyn's own Arthur Schwartz way back in the 90s. Um, Arthur was there for almost a decade, um, was followed by Rocco Spirito, and that didn't last too long. And then Rocco was replaced by Tyler Florence, and that didn't last too long. And then I ran that show into the sunset for six years. Um, and it was live broadcast. It used to be five days a week live in New York and a two-hour show on the weekends. But it was so funny doing live broadcast radio and what an hour really was. Um, I would, it was a natural. Radio was easy for me. So when I came here a couple of weeks ago to do my first show, I had some notes written down. I had some guests booked. And I thought, okay, great. You know, cool. Let's just get rolling here. I know how to do this. I've been doing this forever. And... Uh, Oh, man, a little bit into the show, I'm thinking, what's well, we've got to be getting near the half-hour point. Let me look at my clock here, because we've got to go to a spot. And I looked down at my clock, and it had been 10 minutes. Um, because this is internet radio. It starts at the hour. 4 o'clock's 4 o'clock. Uh, yeah. There we go. 4 o'clock's 4 o'clock, and then we start. So let's go. Anthony, come on, Mike. Come on, Mike, brother. So, my guest for this next segment is... Anthony Giglio. Anthony, how are you? You've had many... Did, I mean, I don't want to go back to when you were 10 years old, but you, you used to... Did you, do food, did you, did you write for Food & Wine? Where did, I, where did you first come across my writer? You used to do their book? What did you do? Uh, yeah, I used to write the, um, the Food & Wine Wine Guide. Gotcha. Uh, I did it for three years, but um, I had a relationship with Food & Wine for about 18 years now. Um, this, this year, the Food & Wine Classic in Aspen will be my 18th classic. That You're I'm speaking. Great wine speaker, great educator. I remember you did a great seminar at the Waldorf a few years ago on Chianti that was great. You were just, I mean, bringing people up to speed. Um, you know, talk about, you, you had a, actually, I, I remember at that seminar, you talked about growing up as an Italian-American kid, because we're trying not to be wine snobs. I'm not a wine snob. Right. I drink wine with dinner every night. Uh, again, I don't drink a lot of uh, the expensive champagnes. I don't, I don't drink near enough Pinot Noir from Burgundy. Uh, I don't drink near enough Beaujolais first growth. It's too expensive. But I drink wine every night for dinner, and in that, 
18 to $25 zone in the retail store. There's so much good juice yeah. these days. And you talked about growing up drinking whatever your grandfather was drinking. Out of a gallon. At, right, a, a <laughs> green gallon jug with a screw cap, probably. And it was in the fridge. They kept that ice cold. Yeah, yeah. And out of that, you became a wine guy. What, but what drew you into the business? What was it about you? What steered you into wine as a career? Um, you don't know the story? It's, it's, it's amazing, and I have to sum it up because it's, it's too long, but... I was um, after co- I went to Fordham at Lincoln Center, mm. came out uh, uh, '89 into the worst uh, recession uh, at the at that point. Stock since, market crashed right? October 19th of '87. I was right? the chef at the Ritz Carlton. It was like boom, instant death in New right, York. So there's no, no there's no magazine work, and I wind up at the illustrious National Real Estate Investor, okay. where uh, I was assistant editor, and I worked there for four long, dark years because every headline was foreclosures, bankruptcies. Yeah. And subsequent suicides. Um, and uh, but while I was there, my editor, this wonderful woman named Dora Hattress, said to me one day because we used to have like you know she's back then you could smoke in the office, so she'd have her cigarette every morning and debrief on what we did last night. And I would tell her like she'd live vicariously through my single life. And uh, I would tell her where I went to dinner, where I had drinks, and this and that. And she said, "Why are you here? Why aren't you writing about wine?" And I thought she was insane. I was twenty three, and I said, uh, I, "Wine? I mean, you know, when I'm out with my." The guys, it's Jägermeister and beer, <laughs> and she says, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, I get all that. That's all. You know, it's all very, you know, hip. But when you're on dates, it's always wine, and when you're with your family, it's always wine. And nobody your age is talking this way. But when you're 40, everyone's drinking wine, and you can get a head start. I thought she was crazy, right? Lightning bolt comes down about two weeks later. I'm reading Details magazine, and it was uh, late '91, so this was uh, November maybe. And Matt Dillon's on the cover. I still have the mag. I still have it. That's how important it is to me. And it said 92 careers for '92. And one of them was become a sommelier, meet chicks. <laughs> so I'm like the ultimate motivation for like, every guy. There's two, there's two people saying this now. So it was the sommelier. It was you know the piece was written by a Jewish kid from the Catskills who came down in the 70s to go go red wine New York. Went to the sommelier society, became a, a som, met a million women, opened a wine shop. And it changed my, my whole... I, I literally signed up with the Sommelier Society. Roger Dagorn was my teacher. Well, Roger and I worked together at the Maurice. He was our sommelier yeah. when Christian Louvier was our chef. Roger... No one knows who this guy is. Roger Dagorn is probably the Yoda of sommeliers. Yes. It, literally and figuratively. He's, sta- he's diminutive character. He stands about five feet five, sloped shoulders, um, doesn't dress with particular acumen, kind of <laughs> average-looking suits that don't fit terribly well, doesn't really care. Roger Dagorn probably forgot more about wine than 90% of the people that yes. say they're experts today know. I would agree. He's insane. He's crazy. Um, he's still working. I believe he's at, where is he, on 15th Street? No, isn't he with um, Michael L- Lamonico? He was, no, he left He left Porterhouse, and oh. now he's at the restaurant. The husband and wife own it. They have the sushi place. What's it called? I'm, um, I'm Tocqueville. Tocqueville. Oh, at Tocqueville. I believe he's at Tocqueville. Well, that's I believe he's I'm on at Tocqueville. 17th, so I'm, I have to go check him out. Anyway, and now, so it's funny. Now, you're going back. So the 90s, for some of these, for some of our listeners on Heritage Radio Network. Weren't born yet. <laughs> weren't born yet. Thank you. Um, but so I'll fill them in. That's why I'm here. That's why Grandpa does this show every week. I was having this discussion with Paul Greco a while back that if you even went to the late 90s and you think of restaurants like Lutes, La Cote Basque, La Caravelle, yep. uh, you, you name it, down the board, the Four Seasons, blah, blah, all the big ones. None of them had sommeliers. There were maybe five sommeliers working in... I'm not sure if even Danielle had... It was a really rare, specific thing. Fast forward to today, and any restaurant worth its salt yeah. probably has a, a guy or a gal, and a ton of them are women now. I'd say it's at least 50-50. Yeah. Someone's on the floor that you're going to say, hey, I've, you know, I'm ready to order wine. I've ordered my food, because that'll kind of drive what I'm going to drink. I always hate it when they give you the wine list and say, what do you want to drink? I haven't ordered yet. I have no idea what I want right. to drink. Let me order the food first. Right. We'll figure it out. And that person's going to come to the table and be your Sherpa. I mean, an amazing opportunity. And you were there so early on. 
Yeah, yeah, and and, and I was and as as Dora had uh, predicted, I was the youngest in class by twenty years. I mean, there, every, it was a hundred percent male. I think maybe were two women, so ninety eight percent male, and everyone was over fifty. I, I was a like they were looking at me like, are you out of your mind? What are you doing here? Um, but, but the point I forgot to mention was hmm. I signed up with the Somali Society. I, I call. Back then, pre-internet, I call information, four one one. Remember those and, days. And I call and I, and I, I find the Somali Society in the East 20s. And um, she says, we have two seats left. We start next Tuesday. Do you want it? And I said, yes. She said, I'll see you at Seyang, uh, up in East 52nd. I'll see you at noon next Tuesday. I was like, noon? And she says, we're professionals. We don't work at night. We're, we're working at night. We have to study during the day. So I go back to my editor and I said, okay, this, you, you started this. Can I take the class? And she said, it's quite easy from my perspective to say yes, but not so easy for you. And I said, why? And she said, well, if you're going to take off every Tuesday at noon for a year, um, we have to cover you. Now, I know how to keep my mouth shut, but you don't because you're a blabbermouth. And you will get us both fired if you <laughs> tell anybody. But, uh, Mike, we pulled it off. Um, I, a year. I left my jacket on my chair. <laughs> She'd shuffle boards on my desk. Like, back then it was, this is back when we had boards with real pasted copies. So cut and paste meant <laughs> using an X-Acto knife and cutting copy and pasting it. Um, and she covered my butt, and I graduated. And within, I think, three months, I was managing editor at Wine Enthusiast. Awesome. I was 20, 24 years old. Well, fast forward to today. I, you know, one of the things that I'm, I'm stoked about, I love to see, um, as I get older especially, is I'll go out to restaurants. I live downtown, so I, live, I was in the West Village for 10 years, and now I'm Lower East Side, so even further, further down. Um, so I frequented downtown restaurants for the most part. And, you know, a lot of the kids eating there look like they're, I can't tell. I mean, 35 looks like a kid to me. But, you know, they're under 35. So there's somewhere between, oh, yeah. let's say, 25 and 35. And they're totally, not, totally knowledgeable about wines. Like, you'll yeah. sit down at a table with these, I'm calling them kids, and they know varietals, countries yeah. of origin, soil typicity. It's like, what? How does that happen? Well, my, I mean, your assistant here is about, what, 15? And he must be into wine. Young threshold, 25. 25. There he goes. He's right, he's right in that age group. But, Mike, that's the, that's the point. Um, when I, this, I, I remember the statistic because when I first started writing about wine around 92, um, New, uh, America, the United States, was in, I believe, 16th place in wine consumption uh, globally. Right. And now we're number one since 2012. Yeah. I mean, so like Go all those kids that are coming up are, are they're you know they're they're not just drinking out of a box in college. I mean, they're, they're no, they're, they're talking, seriously they're grapes. They're into and they're into food too, which I just yeah. love it because yeah. it's like at this you have kids out there you have no idea what this place was like 35 years ago. <laughs> all right, so speaking of 35 years ago, we're here to talk about Italian wine today. Um, you have you could talk about anything you want, but we just kind of agreed on this uh, ahead of time. Um, Tell us what you're going to pour, and then let's also talk about, if you don't mind, you can opine on it, but the incredible improvement across the board in Italian winemaking in the last couple of decades. Oh, gosh, yeah. And yeah, and this region is, is a perfect place to start. Campania, which is where we are. We're talking about Campania. Uh, my home, my home, uh, my peeps. Um, so my, my, all, eight great, all eight of my great-grandparents came from Campania um, in the 1880s, thereabouts. And I wrote about it in my, uh, my current column in La Cucina Italiana magazine, which um, I'm never, it never ceases to amaze me. Like I, when I travel the country, I find it in every airport. I can find any good Hudson News stand or whatever the, whatever the stands are. They've done a great job with that magazine. Um, uh, yeah, and, and, and things are changing. I, I'm kind of nasty that I think picked it up and it's going to get even more distribution, I hope. But um, so I wrote about you know, family history, family roots, and, and, the, and the wines of the area. And people think of Campania, they think of red wine. And that's sure, that's, that's part of the story. But um, my discovery, you know, through, through a lot of uh, years of tasting is the white wines there are shockingly delicious. Yeah. And they're not what you think, because you think of Southern Italy, you think of um, hot climate, you know, hot climate. 
Um, yes. In fact, when you're on Vesuvius, and I was there last week, <laughs> uh, the, the, it's cold climate wines. I mean, they're, they're high altitude, um, you know, beautiful warming, uh, warming air coming in off the water all day. And then at night, whoosh, it just goes down and you have this fantastic cooling that really helps the grapes to hold a lot of acidity. And that's why I brought you this gorgeous Fiano Davolino. You mentioned this. So it's funny how we learned about wines. I mean, our whole life we're learning about wine as we're going. Um, I was I wanted to find out about the San Marzano tomato years ago. So I really wanted to go to San Marzano region in the summer during the harvest and kick the tires. What is, is it a myth? Is it true? And the only way to find out is to go there. Turns out it's phenomenal. I mean, San Marzano, yeah. it's little family farmers. I was thinking of California with acres. Of, no, no, no. These are little half acre, quarter acre plots when that's what the families do. They have about five crops during the year because it is a warm climate. Amazing tomatoes, super volcanic soil, super high water table. Extraordinarily, I mean, that's why it's the best cooking tomato that there is. Um, so, but we're staying in Naples, right? So, one of the nights we're eating at this great legendary restaurant. I forget the name. I'm bad with names. In the, on a, a dead end street in Naples, and the, sort of the guest of the chef. So it's vegetable courses and fish courses and pasta and pizza. And, and I'm drinking this red wine through the whole meal with a tomato sauce and pasta sure. with pizza with tomato sauce. And I'm like, what is this wine? And he says, Oh, it's Falangina. And, and, and so I was probably 52. I never had Falangina before. So Greco di Tufo, Falangina, right. Fiano. Talk about these, because these are all from this region. Yeah. These remarkable whites that are just super crisp, have this yeah. wonderful minerality. And some of them by the ocean have almost a salinity to them. Talk about how, how, how diverse they are and how well they pair with food. Oh, gosh. Well, I mean, first of all, it's important to say that the Greeks... Get full credit for bringing them there. That's why Greco de Tufo, of course. Yes. Um, Falangina and mm. and um, and uh, Fiano and Fiano and Fiano, of course. If it's from Avellino, it's DOCG, so the top. It was actually one of the first uh, DOCGs in Campania was Fiano. So this white grape was always always widely um, heralded as as one of the best. Um, you know, uh, just as a, a, a tangent, uh, Mike. When I was there last week, we went to visit um, the ruins. You know, the volcanic ruins of. Um, yeah, you yeah, had been uh, there. Of. Uh, uh, Vesuvius. Vesuvius. And they they were able, you know, Mestre Berardino 25 years ago was able to find and um, regenerate, regerminate the, the grape seeds that they found in the ash. And they, they, they regenerated Fiano, Greco de Tufo, and Falangina that were all planted around the villas that were buried. How uh, epic from seed stock that goes yeah, back yeah. to Vesuvius. Apparently, um, Israel has this amazing technology for regenerating dead, uh, dead seeds. And they were, it was a huge, a huge expense for them to do this. Um, so ancient, ancient, ancient vines. And here they are still today surviving thanks to the poverty of the South where they couldn't afford to rip out and plant Cabernet and Chardonnay when half of Italy was doing that back in the 80s and everyone was tearing everything out to plant French grapes. Um, who, those who didn't have it in Tuscany, they'll, they'll tell you they've had them for hundreds of years. Um, <laughs> we'll discuss the Tuscans another time. I, I just got done with Bordeaux, so enough of that for now. Yeah, but so you smell these wines, and you it's get, incredible. Yeah, so this beautiful Fiano from uh, Contrada, C O N T R A D A, beautiful um, Selva Corte is what they call this from a specific vineyard, Fiano d'Avellino. Um, the nose is gorgeous. I mean, it, it's you know you, you pick up you pick up that volcanic like. Um, I don't know. It, there is ash in some of these wines. Some of them, I almost, I swear, some of them almost have sulfur in the nose, but not sulfur in the bad way. Right, almost, like eggs. Uh, right. If, if you've been to that region, there's actually live sulfur fields, and there's areas where the ground... I remember walking on the area where the, the ground, the soil that you walked on, was like 107 degrees. You needed shoes. If you walked barefoot, you'd burn your feet. Yeah. Bubbling up. I mean, it almost looks like you know one of Dante's rings of the Inferno. <laughs> Parts of it. I mean, because yeah. live volcanic stuff. And then at night, cool air comes in, yeah. and you have that... 
that dichotomy between the you know the, the burnt earth and cold air. It's just amazing what it does to these grapes. What would this retail for? Um, this I believe is around eighteen, which is a spectacular value. Yeah. Um, if and uh, and these wines work, I think because of that sort of mineral and acid backbone that they have. It's one of the few white wines that I know that I'll eat with tomato sauce, with a nice light tomato sauce. Maybe not a super heavy ragu or a yeah. boar's thing, but, you know, a simple passada, a simple tomato sauce. These wines are absolutely perfect. In the summer, sometimes it's hot. You just don't feel like drinking red wine. Right. Have well, this wine in your fridge. It's perfect. I was going to say, what I think, um, what I think uh, people, they think you can't put a white wine with, with, let's say, tomato sauce. But if you think of the lusciousness of, of olive oil um, and how that's so, you know, like, you know, palate coating the, acid, the acidity in these wines plow through it but yep. it's not like that citrus acidity it's just it's different something different flinty beautiful gotcha it, love the wine what's next um, so uh, Mark, sorry gonna, I drink fast <laughs> Mark we're gonna pour an and you can pour in the same glass let's pour the Alianico first and we're gonna just dump into something grab that empty glass there um, and I brought a beautiful Alianico first and then we'll see a specific expression of course the you know Tarasi um, the king of of uh, Campania Reds we'd have to rinse we're just gonna do it express here yeah, we'll do so. We have, we have Villa Matilde, um, a producer I, I happen to very much like. Thank you. From, uh, from all the research we were doing on this, uh, we, we tasted dozens and dozens of bottles. And you know, Mike, someone has to do it. It's work, but someone had to do it. Um, Villa Matilde, great, great, great. Yannico, the one of the primary grapes of red grapes of Campania. What are you getting on that nose? Does this sea oak? I'm sorry? Does this sea oak? Yes, but, yeah. but not new at all. It's those big giant botte. Are you picking up a lot of that? No, not a lot, but this really nice, like, smoky... To me, it's spicy. Sp- it's spice yeah, from the spicy, wood. Spicy, smoky. Spice from the wood. From the not. char of the wood a little bit. We'll let it open up in the glass because we just poured it. T- talk about the temperature because that's critical. I mean, you you know that vinifera, what is it, 94? At some point when it gets hot, vinifera shuts down. Yeah. Is it 94? Is that the right temperature? 94, exactly. 94 degrees. Yes. So how do, not this wine or this winery, how do these wine producers in regions, which is sadly with global warming, getting bigger regions all over. What happens when you're watching a vineyard in July and August bake at 98, 99 degrees, and at night it doesn't cool down that much? Mike, you, you've stumped me. I mean, I, I have no idea. I, I, okay. They've been doing it for 2,000 years. They, they figured it out. Something works. I mean, but like I said, um, I think you'd be surprised that um, when you're that high up, how cool the air can get at night, even if, even if they, you know, 20, 20, you know, 20, 30 feet down below on sea level, it's, uh, it's, it's so much hotter because the air is, is, is just sitting there uh, on that plateau. Yeah, they've been doing it forever. I mean, the Italians, like you said, the Greeks were planting these vineyards in the south of Italy eons ago. Yeah. We weren't going to talk about Sicilian wine. We'll get there the next time we have you in because that's another area. I think it was... Um, Etna. <laughs> Crazy. Uh, so here's a funny thing that happened, Mike. You asked me um, if I could bring some Etna wines. And you know what the, what happened? I drank them all. <laughs> Don't laugh. So it's how this never had us. So I, I live down the Lower East Side. September Wines is a store by me, Ludlow Street. Uh, maybe Ludlow and Rivington. I don't know what the corner is. But September has a great little wine selection. I know the people. It's sort of the way wine stores are these days. Where they, I'll go in, tell them what we're having for dinner. They'll pick, tell me what my price range is. They'll pick a couple of bottles. I'll take them home and drink them. So I was having something light one night, and they picked uh, Mascarello, Norello. Um, and I took it home, and it was like love at first sight. Poured it into my poured it into my glass. Anthony had this really—I mean, pretty much—it was like you just knew you're going to like this wine. It had this really light look to it, you know, not 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 
not that you just knew from the weight of the wine in the glass. This was kind of a lighter weight, more feminine red. Um, basically, drank the whole bottle almost before dinner was ready. No, no kidding. It was spectacular. It was, and it was in that sort of gamay, pinot noir, schiava, that sort of really light style that I love. Yeah. So we'll talk about that another time. What do we have in the glass? I guess here? We, and we did last time we I was here. No. Um, Last time I was here, I wasn't with you. I'm sorry. You weren't. You were probably on John Joe's show. I was on Joe Joe Campanelli. Yeah. We talked about um, you know, high altitude wines from uh, from Val d'Ost, and those those are exactly that profile, the Gamay like wines that. Are... It just it's uh, it's just sometimes my uh, yeah fatigue of big heavily extracted you know hit you over the head wines, and I love those those reds that are just crisp and clean and light and feminine and just you know a wonderful middleweight in your mouth. They're just a pleasure with food. Yeah. Um, so this is a wine from uh, from Avellino, um, Tarassi, DOCG. Um, Donna Chiara is uh, a relatively new uh, a new winery, uh, founded on an old family estate. Uh, the the woman who's running the winery named it after her grandmother, who they called Donna Chiara out of respect. Um, she was apparently legendarily known for her hospitality and and actually winemaking. She actually was known to make wine, but they didn't sell it. They didn't sell it commercially. So. Um, did I miss the varietal? What was the varietal? Uh, Alianico. Alianico again. But, but from Tarasi. See, this is different. So this one, to me, has more red fruit, more dark fruit, more almost red cherry, plummy, less of that smoke. This sees oak, but it, I, don't, I don't feel the oak on it. You know, it's, it's, it seems much more fruity, um, lively. And firmer tannins. Funny. Because it's got fruit on the nose, and you get the tannic structure. What's the same year, different year? Um, this one is, I'm sorry, I'm not. No worries, um, no worries. We're uh, doing internet radio. Two, 2008, I know this was the oldest. The other one was two, that two the Alianico was 09, believe it or not. I thought that would be the baby of the two, but in, 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 on nose, that one seemed much more structured. Correct, the first uh, one. More closed. Yeah, it was. I mean, I was getting, it was, was shut down. I, mean, I was getting sort of oak and yeah. toast and yeah. smoke off the nose. I wasn't getting fruit. This, I'm getting fruit right. on the nose. And I wanted to bring you something older. And here, this one turns out to be ready now. It's more open and yeah. approachable. The 08 um, Donna Chiara, uh, Tarasi, DOCG. Uh, really, really pretty and ready this moment to drink right now. What's happening with winemaking in... Let's stay where we are in Campania. What's the new generation doing? What are they looking for? What are we seeing? Because throughout Italy, we've seen, I mean, look at Chianti, look almost everywhere, but there's been so much improvement in the last 15, 20 years well, with disciplines kind of imposed, but, you know, less yield, true grape, you know, let's find out what the DNA of these grapes are. What are we calling San Giovese right, right. or these supposed clones? What's happening in Campania? You know what? I, it never cease to amaze me, Mike. Whenever you meet uh, winemaking families, and, and in Italy, it really is winemaking families, not much different from. France and Spain, where there's still family operations. Very few are, you know, owned by corporations, right? right? Or at least people are sad when they see that happen. Um, in Tuscany, it's all over the place. But down here, no way. It's, it's still a family operations. But I love when they say, oh, meet my son, Marco. He's just back from UC Davis. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you have, you know, you have tradition, um, family, you know, family, family, you know, family, everything, family rules, family honor, family money. But they come to California for innovation, um, to modernize, and then they bring it back and they graft it onto that family principle. I, I find it all over the place in, in Southern Italy, where that's their that's their um, that's their that's their, that's how they get to, they get ahead. So like, you don't need to teach them winemaking, but you can teach them how to polish it, how to market it, how to do you know the, the American spin on things, which is you know here's here's a process that you could you know take advantage of, or here's something that will fix problems you're having with the year. 
Dave, Davis, UC Davis is just every, every everywhere I go I hear, oh, my kids are at UC Davis. I love when I hear that because it's the perfect marriage between tradition and innovation. Yeah, and for those of you that don't know, and I'm sure you all do, UC Davis is basically the Harvard of yeah. viticulture in America. That's where you go if yeah. you want to study winemaking and get out in the soil and really learn with the best. And the great irony is that like, you can't find a California wine in Southern Italy anywhere. Like there's, like, there's not so much regard for American wine as there is for American uh, winemaking. Yeah. Well, the... Uh, and, and, you know, one of the things I'm, I think that makes us interesting on this country, in this country, is when, you know, you travel the world in wine. So you're in Bordeaux, you do not see Burgundy on wine lists. Right. If you're in Tuscany, you don't see Alianico on wine lists. Right. If you're down south, you don't see Sangiovese on wine lists. The, the Europeans tend to be very, they drink what's around them. Uh -huh. I mean, they're much more culturally rooted in a tradition. This is what we eat, this is what we grow, this is what we drink with what we eat. We don't we don't cross borders for that, right. even if it's 15 or 20 miles away. Right. And and yet in this country, we're just so wide open for well, we anything have, that's good. And we have, we, have, we have the best selection here in New York. Italians will say they can't find the wines that we have here on our list in New York. So we'll end this with this, because you'll give me a tip. Um, where Name for me four or five stores that you would go to that you think have really full-on... Uh, super curated Italian lists, retail stores. Could be Brooklyn, could be Manhattan, could be anywhere in the city. Um, okay, don't make that face. So Aster has... Aster's I was going to say, Aster is my go-to, especially for older stuff, too. Have you could... been to Lou DiPaolo's little thing that his son Sammy runs on Grand yeah, Street? So I was just talking to Lou. We were at the Nantucket um, Wine and Food Festival. Not Nantucket, what am I saying? Um, Newport Mansions uh, three weeks ago. And he said, you need to get down to the shop. I have not been to the shop. You've so got to go down there. i got to go to the shop. Yeah, I want to give a shout out to Lou, because Lou's, Lou's been a, uh, really a champion of Italian ingredients. Love Lou Forever. Five generations on Grand Street. The, him and the, the Lapora family of Ferrara and one or two other families are just, they're the last of the Italians in a zip code that used to be known as Little Italy. Um, <laughs> and he's just, Lou has these relationships in Italy because he travels seven, eight times a year, exhausting, always looking for ingredients. He, he knows the cheesemaker's name. He probably knows the cow's name. He knows his prosciutto maker's name. He knows everything. He just it, It's actually done that way and he did the same thing with wine and and now his son Sammy sort of the, there's a passing of the baton it's a great 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 store for wines yeah and then there's that guy on Clinton Dr. Dr. Vino I think it's called that's not bad either Dr. Vino yeah that's I think the name of the store funny store I wish the guy was more personable I go to September because the guy's kind of <laughs> watching soccer every time I go and doesn't talk to me much um yeah it, it uh I've, I've gone to Vino of course um and uh Italian wine merchants uh, they're more in my neighborhood where I'm where I'm working. The Italian wine merchants is probably the. I mean, they're yeah. Sergio's crazy. That's a great store. Yeah, and and Italy, which is right by my office, uh, yeah. I pop in there. The Italy, the vino shop too. Um, but yeah, the ones I, I I need to get more to Brooklyn. I, I'm 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 here for you. I never get here. I never get, dude. I do radio in Brooklyn. I'll get it on that L train and go back to where the old people live. I live in Manhattan. I do not pretend to represent Kings County. I love it here, as cool as can be. Go Kings County. Go with all the energy, but. Um, I live in that old age home on the other side of the East River called Manhattan. we got to sign it off. Hey, my guest has been Anthony Giglio, wonderful, wonderful wine expert. We'll talk about anything you want, but particularly Italian wines. We'll get you back soon when you're available. Thanks for coming on please, today. Please, please. Uh, the name of the show is Food Talk with Mike Colomeco, the broadcast network on the Internet's Heritage Radio Network.org. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher as podcast. It's a pleasure. And we'll be back next week with a Halloween show. Who's coming on next week? I've got one of the oldest candy makers in Brooklyn, Michael Rogak of Joe Mark Chocolates. Even if you've never heard of him, you will. It's one of the great candy stores left from... You know, Brooklyn has a real candy chocolate tradition. Michael will tell us about that because he's, I believe, the second, if not the third generation. And I've got the um, chef owner of... 
Pock Pock coming in. Yeah, that's cool. That Thai restaurant that's on fire opened in Portland, now was in Brooklyn, has a little, little, little footprint in the Lower East Side, but he'll be with me as well talking about his cuisine and his new book. So stay tuned next week as well. Folks, take care. Be well. We'll see you in a week. for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.